morning. This morning, I want to tell you a story. We like stories. One of the easiest ways to get people's attention, as soon as I said I'm going to tell you a story, you start setting your Bibles down. You're not getting off that easy. But every good story, every good tale, every saga that, that we're familiar with is this, this contrast between two clashing kingdoms. The kingdoms that confront one another, this is wired within us, good and evil. This appeals to our very nature. Each one of us desires for good, but is prone to evil. And these kingdoms are clashing without us ever thinking about it and most of the world ever knowing about it. And typically in these clashes, you have a protagonist and an antagonist. The protagonist, the first one to the scene, the the hero, typically the first one to battle, and the antagonist, the one who battles against them. And so throughout the scriptures, we have the tale of the protagonist and the antagonist, the one kingdom versus the other. And this clash has gone on throughout scriptures and is still going on to this day. And every good writer, every good fictional writer, every good screenwriter for movies appeals to this. We know all of our our favorite sagas, you know, the Star Wars and the Harry Potters and, and all this stuff is light and dark, good and evil. And the audience always wants the good to triumph over the evil. And so this is true in fiction, but this is especially true in the spiritual realm. And that's what we're going to spend some, some time here. Because most people don't even think about or understand that these two opposite kingdoms are in operation within the world. Without most people even noticing it. But yet to us and to our ears, the theme of king and kingdom is foreign to us, quite literally. We've never been under a king. We would not consider our country a kingdom. But yet, these themes have been the predominant way of living for most countries throughout most of history. And Israel is no different. Every nation who is under a king is typically defined by that king. And we see this through the history of of Israel. The good kings and the bad kings. And as the kings go, so does Israel. So Israel is defined by its king. And if you're under a king, you'd be defined by that king as well. And so as we sung these songs leading up to this, and as we see throughout scriptures, Jesus is a king, and every king must have a kingdom. And so when you think about a king having a kingdom, we must think of the kingdom that we as Christians speak of often, but do we really understand the kingdom of God? This is impossible to explain in one sermon. We could spend years unpacking the kingdom of God and still not grasp it. And so I, I love one of the, the simplest definitions I've heard of this. Graham Goldsworthy, we, we just finished his, one of his biblical theology books. It's in the back. Really good. But he says, the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. I think that's a really helpful formula. What is the kingdom of God? It is God's people in God's place under God's rule. So we know that our God, Jesus, has authority over all things. But in his kingdom is something particular. And so to be a king, you have to have three things, and Goldsworthy addresses these. You have to have right, realm, and rule. To be a king, you have to have right, R-I-G-H-T, realm, and rule. So you have to have right. You have to have the authority to be a king. Someone has to give you that authority. This is important that we read in Daniel 7 that the Ancient of Days gives the Son of Man authority. And Jesus speaks often about authority given him by the Father. To be a king, you have to have right. You also have to have realm. You have to have a place to govern over. There has to be something that is yours that you are in control of. And you have to have rule. Subjects that you rule over. 
You are no king without subjects. And so to be a king, you have to have right realm and rule. And our text this morning is going to deal with Jesus' kingship. And Jesus' kingship is going to be all these things combined, which we will call his kingdom. His right, his realm, and his rule. And so there are many aspects of Jesus' identity. And so we're going to focus in and narrow in on, on this one. And so a lot of times what we'll do in the scriptures is we'll take grand overview looks at things, and then we'll do like a microscope will do, and we will drill down into a particular area. And so we're going to spend some time in this passage and look at the nature of kingdom. And so we're going to bring in the other gospels for support. But one of the things I want to do here as well is draw attention to the kingdom that is in opposition to Christ. And we're going to look at marks of each of these kingdoms as we move along. And so the story we're going to tell today, this passage, is set out beautifully like a play. And each act of this play revolves around the movement of Pilate. Pilate comes in and out of his, of his palace, and uh, we're going to see this unfold. Act 1, we're going to see the conflict established and the first kingdom is presented. We're going to see this in the first few verses. The second act is the second kingdom is declared when it is put on trial. So you get that. And then the, the third act is going to be this, this climax intention, really where the first strike happens before this spiritual clash. So we're going to walk through those things. So if you would open your Bibles to John chapter 18. I'm going to pick up reading in verse 28 and read through verse 40. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would have not delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it about me? Others say it to you about me. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am king. For this purpose I was born And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After this, he after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man to you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you over the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we come before you in awe and wonder over the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, forgive us if we don't give you the fear and reverence and splendor and worship and majesty that you deserve. For those who are members of your kingdom, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, 
Let us recognize our citizenship and lean into the words of Jesus here. For those who have given ears to hear, Lord, I pray that we would desire to grow into maturity, that we would desire to grow in knowledge of you, desire to be uh, ambassadors for your kingdom here on earth. Lord, I also pray for those who do not know you, at this moment, our citizens of the kingdom who is in opposition to you. Lord, that you would bring to their view the wickedness and the lies and the distortion and the hypocrisy of the kingdom that would dare try to stand against you. And that by standing on their own and by standing with the world, they are standing against the king of kings. And they are standing against the kingdom of God. Lord, we pray that your word and your spirit would transform hearts and minds and bring the dead to life and transfer citizenship from a dead and worthless kingdom to a kingdom of eternal glory and splendor in your name. Lord, I pray that you will be with your servant this morning. that I will not speak to please men, that I will not speak of my own wisdom. He will crush my desire to be loved and lifted up, but that I would be brought low so that you would be glorified and lifted up. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we begin here in verse 28. Then they... The they here is the kingdom representatives. On the surface, they are supposed to represent the people of God. They are supposed to represent the kingdom of Israel that is under the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who brought them out of Egypt, the one who gave them the law, the one who gave them redemption, the one who dwelt in their midst in the temple. But in fact, they are representatives of the kingdom of the world. This first kingdom we're going to see over the next few verses is going to start to show itself. Because on the surface, they seem very religious, like many people do. They seem like they've got it all together, and they're doing all the things that God wants them to do. But you cannot press that down for too long. It will rear its ugly head. So they, these ambassadors, these are the vocal leaders. Not every citizen of of, of the kingdom is going to be as vocal and as forward as these are. But these are the ambassadors. These are the ones who are stepping out, who are speaking for the kingdom and speaking against the kingdom of God. And so then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. So let's just recap where we were last week real quick. Uh, There's a lot of movement going on, and each of the Gospels, like we talked about, is addressing a a different aspect of the events of that night. And so we get a full picture by reading all four. And so what we understand is that Jesus and his disciples went to the garden. From there, he was turned over by Judas and the soldiers to the chief priests and all of their soldiers. And then they're brought first to the house of Annas, who was kind of the the, the godfather high priest. He's the old man here. You kind of have to get his blessing before you go to Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the high priest at the moment. He was appointed by Rome, and so he's the final authority. To make it official, you've got to bring it before him. But because the Jews had a plan here and they're doing this all by the cover of night, they go to Caiaphas in the middle of the night. And so Annas tries him and questions him and Caiaphas questions him. 
and then to make it official because they weren't allowed to arrest you and try you on the same day. They wait till daybreak. Then they bring the entire assembly together. All the chiefs, all the scribes, and all the elders would come together at daybreak. And so we get all these details in the different gospels. And so when that happens and they pronounce their judgment without giving him a fair trial, without actually having a real accusation, then they ship him off the pilot. All this happens, and John tells us here that it was early morning. All these things happen throughout the night, and it's still early, and then they bring him to Pilate's headquarters. King Herod had a palace, and it was on the, the upper city. And so it was near to where the high priest's home was. It wasn't a far walk. And so Herod's palace is a lot bigger. As, as big as Caiaphas's palace was, Herod's is bigger. And so Herod has most of the, the palace, but uh, Pilate, being the governor of the region, would use a certain part of that, and it was called the Praetorium. And the Praetorium was this part of the palace where trials would be held. They would have public trials, so they'd have a, a uh, public place to do this. And so there would be a balcony above the pavement where Pilate could come out and he could speak to the people and everyone's hearing and they would all look to him. And so this is what's happening. They're moving him over there. They bring him outside and it's early in the morning. Pilate's got to get dressed, brush his teeth, whatever he needs to do and come out and be ready to hear what's going on. We're going to pick up there. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat Passover. This is an important detail. So they remained outside. They want Pilate to, to try Jesus, but they don't want to be defiled. And so the Jews, they had many biblical precedents for things being unclean leading into the Passover, but they created many more. They wanted to make sure they didn't get any of the Gentile cooties, and they wanted to stay away from anything that could, that could potentially ceremonially make them unclean. So this all would happen outside of the gate, and Pilate would come out to them, and they'd be holding Jesus. And so we're going to see this movement of Pilate coming out, and then Pilate going back in. Let's pick up in verse 29. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? So it's important to understand Pilate's role here. So Herod was the king of Israel. He was appointed by Rome to be their representative. But Pilate was Caesar's representative. So there were many kings at this time. So there was King Herod, but the supreme king at this time was Tiberius Caesar. And so Pilate was his governor, was his law and order there, and he reported directly to the king of Rome, Caesar. And so this is, this is Pilate's role. And so Pilate is a company man, and, and he's got to keep peace. And we're getting into a lot more of this next week as we kind of break down this back and forth between Pilate and the Jews. But just so you know what his role is here and why they're going to him, he's the governor of this province. He says, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Anyone hear an accusation there? There's no real accusation there. And so Pilate is supposed to just take their word for it. These honorable religious men who are coming and saying, we wouldn't lie to you. You trust us. This man's doing evil. You've got to trust us as they're lying. The first thing we see about this kingdom is it is a deceitful kingdom. Kingdom number one is a deceitful kingdom because in its eyes, truth does not matter. It's only the end agenda. So they're delivering over one they say is doing evil. Pilate, the smart dude, he knows that there's no real accusations here. So in verse 31, Pilate says to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Pilate knows this is not a matter for him. Take this, handle it by yourselves. But now their real intentions come out. 
The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. They go from some evildoer to someone who deserves to die. This deceitful kingdom is also a murderous kingdom. It has hatred in in its heart. And anyone who opposes it, they will either silence you or put you to death. This deceitful kingdom is also a murderous kingdom. So they said it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now, biblically, God had given them provision for capital punishment. If you're in our Deuteronomy study, there's a lot of things you can die for. You talk back to your parents, kids, they would stone you. If you had relationships that were not honoring to God, they would stone you. There's all these other things. They had the right to do this. But what happens when Rome conquered Israel, they took this right away. And so what these leaders are saying, we're good subjects of Rome. Now, we're not going to do what our God commands us, because if they were truly convinced that he was a blasphemer, they should have stoned him on the spot. So they're punting to Rome. They want, they want Rome to take care of this because they want to put him to death. Rome was the only one who had the power of capital punishment. But there's another thing at, at play here, and we know this, because John has told us all throughout his gospel. They feared the people. They know they would be the bad guys if they stoned him. So, of course, these brave men who do everything in the middle of the night are going to put all the pressure on Rome. Hey, it wasn't us. We just brought him to Pilate, and Pilate crucified him. So they had this, this plan. They wanted murder all along. This deceitful, murderous kingdom is also a fearful kingdom because it fears what people think about them. They fear people. They don't fear God. And the hypocrisy here is astounding because on one hand, they care so much about ceremonial cleanliness that they won't even step on his property. All the while, they're having murderous desires in their hearts for him to die. This kingdom is also a hypocritical kingdom. Because in one hand, they have their own view of righteousness. But on the other hand, there is murderous hatred in their hearts. And we see this many times. One of the most famous passages for this, I want to lean in here just a second. Jesus addresses this in Matthew 23. Jesus pinpoints this the mark of this kingdom that goes against him. So Matthew 23, I'm going to start in verse 23. Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Mm. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is the kingdom that opposes the kingdom of God. The kingdom of this world has its own morality. They are righteous in their own eyes. This is the world we live in. You look around, does the world show us anything different? And many people would, would think that, sure, this, this, this country or this world loves Christian values only when it has to. Now we see that, and it's not beneficial to be a Christian anymore 
we will silence you or we will put you to death. We have no problem killing babies. We will kill you. This world has taken the mask off. A hypocrite is one who wears a mask. The world no longer wears a mask. These things that we see here, it wasn't just them. Human nature has not changed. Depravity has not changed. And so we need to recognize and hear these voices of this kingdom. And then John says something poignant here. This was to fulfill the word that, Je- the word that Jesus had spoken by what kind of death he was going to die. Fulfill the word he said in John 3.14. Same book, 3.14. What type of death was he going to die? Jesus says this before and uses a very unique example. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And if you don't know this account, to be saved from their sins, to, to, to not die, they had to look at this serpent who was a sign of evil. Look upon sin. Look up here and, and you will be saved. Jesus is showing, I'm going to be lifted up as a sign of sin for your salvation, for your eternal life. Jesus again says these same words about being lifted up in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verses 31 through 33. Chapter 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. At the cross of Christ, as him being lifted up, This at the same time is condemnation for the kingdom of of this world. Your fate is sure. When I am lifted up, I will lift up mine to me also. And John tells us here, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. John wants us to get this detail. He He repeats it for us. One more passage in Matthew chapter 20 where Jesus speaks very directly here. The most direct he is about his about his his death and resurrection in all the Gospels. Matthew 20, starting in verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. All this had to happen so that Jesus' words would be fulfilled. This is not accidental, but this is intentional. And so the obvious question comes up. Why the cross? Why of all things? Why this time in history? Why this method of death? It's important to recognize that crucifixion was only around, it was kind of invented by the the Persians who began by sticking the heads of those that they conquered on stakes to scare off anyone else who who would dare come against them. And so this was meant to send a statement. You should know that something horrible will happen to you. And it was around until Constantine, the first Christian emperor of Rome, and he got rid of it. But in the crucifixion process, which we'll get into over the next few months, they were scourged and stripped and mocked, and they were left to die, typically, and to rot. And so the birds would come and take away your bones. This is not a pretty sight, and it's not meant to be. Crucifixion was meant to be a statement and a deterrent to anyone who saw this horror. And it was only, could only be approved by Rome. So it tells us about crucifixion, but why crucifixion? I can't uh, presume upon the mind of God, but here's what I do know for sure. That all who see the cross must be reminded of the horror of sin. When you look at two boards put together, you are reminded that it is the wickedest of the wicked who are put up there. 
the worst torture and humiliation and excruciating death the world has ever created. And if you truly understand how painful that was, not to mention the wrath of God poured out on him, and when you look at the cross, you cannot take Jesus' death lightly. Because I would argue, if Jesus' death was easy, we'd be tempted to look lightly at our sin. But every time we think about what our Savior went through for us, we should be burdened by the weight of our sin. It's amazing. The most feared symbol in the ancient world becomes the greatest symbol of hope to us. Only our God could redeem something so horrific and make us sing praise songs about it. When you see the cross, do you see Jesus lifted up for your sin? When you see the cross, do you weep over your own sin? Are you burdened with the ugliness and the horror of your deadness and your rebellion to God? When you look at the cross, do you rejoice in Jesus' victory? Do you rejoice that your Savior would come to earth and take on flesh and go and die on a tree and become a curse for you? For the believer, at the same time, this breaks us to our core and lifts us up in rejoicing because we are lifted up with him because he became the curse for us. It's exactly what Galatians 3 says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. So that, why did all this happen? So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles Life through faith, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The promise of Abraham, the Holy Spirit, the removing of a curse by becoming a curse. That is what the cross represents. And so I want to ask you, what do you see when you see the cross? Do you see your sin? And do you rejoice in Christ's victory over it? Or is it just a symbol? Is it just some Christian symbol that people wear in their bracelets and get tattooed on their arms and wear around their neck? Do you ever wonder when you see someone with a cross on their neck? Um, I was struck by this the other day because I'm watching a guy who walks into a store. I'm just sitting here watching him. He's got a cross bracelet hanging around. And just this beautifully strung list of profanities you know, comes off of his mouth. As I was thinking about it this week, I was like, I'm going to start asking people, what is that? What, is, what does that mean? That's a good question for us, and it's a good question to ask. You want to know, how do I start evangelistic conversations? You see someone wearing a cross? Get them to tell you about it. Because for our culture, the cross has become a fashion symbol. Please do not lose the weight of the cross. And so it was the cross that led Jesus to this exchange, which we're going to see right here. Uh, Act 2, we're going to follow the movement of Pilate. Pilate comes out. And then so Pilate entered his headquarters. The Jews stayed outside. He brings Jesus in, and so he's going to get this personal interview with Jesus. And he called Jesus, and he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, this seems like we missed something here, because we did. So we're going to look at Luke, Luke 23 real quick. Luke 23 kind of fills in the, the gap of what they were saying before Pilate brought him inside. Luke 23, verse 1, The whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. Verse 2, and they began to accuse him, saying, now we get the accusations. Because Pilate first says, what's your accusation? They didn't have one. So now they've got to think on the spot, all right, what is our accusation? 
We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. So they're saying, we just want to be good Romans. He won't, he won't let us be good Romans. He's leading people astray. And they, they say something interesting here. He says that he himself is Christ a king. Jesus knew exactly what he was saying. They knew what he was saying. By claiming to be the Messiah, by proving to be the Messiah, he's also a king. They were afraid of his, of his kingship here. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered them, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. So Luke gives us the condensed version of this conversation. So we'll jump back into John. So Jesus won't let them be good Roman citizens. Jesus is making himself king, and he's stirring the people up. This is going to be important later, so remember that detail. And so Pilate responds with this mix of curiosity and contempt. You? You're the king of the Jews? We know Jesus did not walk around flashy like many of these prosperity preachers that turn our stomachs. This is a humble man who came calmly. You? You're the king of the Jews. Jesus has always asked good questions. Verse 34. Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Who's asking? Do you really want to know? Why are you asking? Because he answers a question with a question to determine his motivation. You just want to know because you want to get these, these pesky Jews out of your hair, or do you really want to know? So he doesn't answer the question, are you king of the Jews? And Pilate answers, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests had delivered me over to you. What have you done? I love that Jesus never answers them directly. But let's go back to that, that first question. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus has to be careful here, depending on how he answers. Because if he answers yes, there would be a conflation or a confusion between a civil kingship and a messianic kingship. And so first, he's got to define what it means to be a king. So he doesn't say yes without contingency. He doesn't say no either because he's not going to deny his, his kingship. But what he does, every time someone asks him if he's a king, he tells them about the nature of his kingdom. And by that, confirming that he is a king. One of those great examples is in Acts chapter 1. Just go about two pages to your right in your Bible. Acts chapter 1, picking up in verse 6. This is after resurrection. This is Jesus promises the, the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They were waiting for a physical kingdom. Will you restore this kingdom to Israel? How does Jesus answer them? It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. They're expecting this physical kingdom, but Jesus describes the kingdom of God. When we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, what does that look like? We will have authority from the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. His kingdom coming is the gospel going forward. His kingdom coming is lives being transformed. And so now we're going to get into the nature of that kingdom. Because in verse 36, Jesus answered the question they should have asked. Not just are you a king, because there were many kings in that day, so it would not be uncommon for there to be another king. But what type of king are you? 
So here's Jesus' profound words. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. I want to spend a couple minutes here. Let's, let's break this down a little bit. So the word kingdom here can also mean kingship. My right to be king, who I am as a king, therefore claiming my kingdom. He says my kingship, I am a king. But he answers him in typical Jesus fashion. But he clarifies, I don't think I'm the type of king that you're thinking of. What type of king am I? My kingdom is not of this world. So we've got the first kingdom. There are some marks of it. The first mark of Jesus' kingdom is that it is a spiritual kingdom. It is not of the same substance as the kingdom that goes against it. Look at Colossians 3.15. be up on the screen. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. The kingdom of God rules in the hearts of his people. Jesus is king over his people. It is a, a spiritual kingdom. It is not visible to the outside world, so it is also an unseen kingdom. It is spiritual because it reigns in the hearts of his people. The kingdom of God transforms people from the inside out. It is not limited by physical space. But it's also an unseen kingdom because it is of a different substance than this very world. It is not of this world. It's also not of the same location. It's a celestial kingdom. It is a heavenly kingdom. The kingdom of God, at the same time, Jesus tells us, is at hand, but yet not of this world. And how is that? If you've had any conversations with us about this stuff, we know that these two things are true at the same time, the what and the what. The already and the not yet. I love that my wife is in the front row because she's usually mouthing these things to me before I say them. So at the same time, the already, the kingdom of God is at hand, but the not yet, it is not of this world. So our celestial, the celestial kingdom here is really explained by Paul. Paul takes this and runs with it. And so I quickly, if you can get to Ephesians quickly, get there, but these are going to be up on the screen. Look at all of the ways that Paul unpacks this. Starting in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What does it mean that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world? When we are blessed in Christ, we are blessed in his kingdom, which is in the heavenly places. We can't even wrap our minds around that. Verse 20 of the same chapter. He says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand on the heavenly places. Jesus is the king in heaven right now. He is reigning over his kingdom and his people. It is his rule is in place right now. And that is where our blessings lie. A few verses down in verse 6 of chapter 2. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Paul speaking in the present tense here. If you are in Christ, you are seated with him. You are citizens of his kingdom right now. Our king is ruling and we sit with him in his kingdom in the heavenly places. He goes on, chapter 3, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul is saying that all this heavenly power that Christ has and that we have, it is being declared to his enemies who fight against them in the heavenly or the spiritual realm. And finally, look at chapter 6. We know this one really well. Verse 12. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So this kingdom clash is not just what's happening on earth. That is an outpouring of what is, what is happening in the heavenlies. Satan and his forces, the, the spirits of evil are going against Christ, but his kingdom is greater than theirs. And our wrestle, we, we need to know this as believers, is not against flesh and blood. That's just the outpouring of the, the spiritual reality. This is a lot of stuff that I don't want you to take lightly. I'm not going to gloss over because it's helpful for us to understand this. So we've got the spiritual kingdom, the celestial kingdom. This is not of the earthly kingdom. But what does this line bring to mind? My kingdom is not of this world. It should bring to mind us. Jesus just prayed for us in John 17. They are not of this world. Just like his kingdom is not of this world, as citizens of that kingdom, we are in it, but not of it. And we are his kingdom representatives. Just like the ones who are going against him now are the representatives of this false kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world, but if it were, my servants would have been fighting. Anyone who expects a king expects him to have military forces behind him. This is also a powerful kingdom. My servants can and will fight, but they're not fighting for this world. This is chump change. My kingdom is not of this world. This is not the fight of this world. This is why he told Peter to put his sword away. It's not that kind of fight, Peter. As you move on to verse 37, then Pilate says to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am king. You said it. You are right in saying it. And this is interesting because don't, don't gloss over this. These two important details. Look at these two things. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. For this purpose I was born shows us his humanity. For this purpose I was born. He is a man. This is what Matthew gets at in his genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. Jesus is a man. He is the rightful heir to the throne of David, to the house of Judah. So this is also a Davidic kingdom. I was born for this. My bloodline goes back to the rightful king of Israel. But also for this purpose, I came into the world. This speaks of his incarnation and his deity. I was born, but I came into the world as well. This is a Davidic kingdom and a divine kingdom. At the same time, he rightfully rules on the throne of David, but he rules as the God of glory that we sung about earlier. And we get this in John 1.14. This beloved verse connects all these things. And the word became flesh, born, dwelt among us. That word is eternal, he's God. And we have seen his glory. Oh, there is only glory for God. Glory as of the only Son of the Father. Humanity, deity, full of grace and truth. And that's why he says, for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear, to bear witness to the truth. And the kingdom is here because the king is here. The kingdom is in this world because the king has taken on flesh to come into this world. And so here's what we know about the kingdom in Jesus' first and second coming. I know this is a lot of information and I encourage you. If you're feeling overwhelmed, go back and listen to it this, this week. I want you guys to get this. And if you have questions, please ask me. Jesus' first coming, he comes with a spiritual kingdom to inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth so that through his death and resurrection, we might be reconciled to God and begin his work of new creation through us. Coming number one. 
In his second coming, he will bring in the consummation of that kingdom when the spiritual and physical will become one and his kingdom will be on full display for all of his people. The kingdom of God is already and not yet. We good? Amen. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. This is the same analogy Jesus has been using all along. My citizens will hear me. My sheep, remember John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice. Everyone who is of the truth, same thing. If you're a citizen of my kingdom, I will give you ears to hear and you will, will hear me. It is like a kingdom frequency that only the sheep can hear. Everyone who is of the truth will hear my voice. They will listen to my voice. Not just hear it, but they will listen and obey. My citizens will listen to me. And then Pilate asked his fateful question. What is truth? Such a profound question, and it's a question that Kingdom One must answer. If you are in Kingdom One, you must answer what is truth. And this is something that the philosophers of this world have wrestled with for ages. What is truth? Can we really have truth? When the irony of it all is who is truth is standing right in front of him. And I think John intentionally leaves this open-ended. What is truth? The other thing about this kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, it has claims to truth. The kingdom of God is a theological kingdom. There are absolute truths within it. And so then the drama picks up, and now we go into Act 3 where Pilate goes out. And after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you uh, at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Throughout this entire exchange, king has been the dominant theme in kingdom. And so the way Pilate phrases it, and I think he does this intentionally, because they accused him of being the king of the Jews, Pilate actually takes what Jesus is saying and is still calling him the king of the Jews. Do you want me to turn him over to you? And we've got to remember, if you know Israel's history, that having a king was always their stumbling block, wasn't it? They wanted to be like the other nations. We want a king like the other nations, when in fact God was supposed to be their, their king. But this shows where their heart is. And we're going to get into this more next week. But if you jump forward, chapter 19, verse 15, the chief priests answered. These are supposed to be the leaders of the people. We have no king but Caesar. Saying we're supposed to represent God, but our allegiance is to the kingdom of man. Our allegiance is to the kings of this world. Our allegiance is to the kingdom of man, not the kingdom of God. And so on the surface, the Jews and the Romans are at odds. In fact, they hate each other. But really, they belong to the same kingdom. Because let's look at this. The religious, the Jews claim to have the truth, yet they are manipulators, they are liars, and they are murderers. And the pagans ask, what is truth? Because to both of them, truth is relative and, and subjective and can be twisted for their own aims. They may seem to be different, but they have the same worldview. That is a worldview that is devoid of truth. And if you are of the truth, you will be of his kingdom. And so these two forces that seem to be at odds, this whole trial and this whole process is rigged because they're all in on it together against the kingdom of God. And we see this all throughout scriptures. We see this in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and plot in vain? Psalm 1. And then we get the first strike. So you got... The, two, the, 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 the tension building, the two kingdoms here facing off, the kingdom of the world and the, and the kingdom that is not of this world. And the first blow here, as happened in Genesis 3, the first blow comes from the antagonist. 
They cry out again. The other Gospels tell us this is a repeated process. Send us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Not this man. They don't even use his name. They don't even, they don't even have enough dignity to say, not Jesus of Nazareth. Not this man. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. And this word in the Greek uh, can be translated different things. It can also be translated insurrectionist. You don't know what an insurrectionist is. is um, someone who is involved in trying to overthrow kingdoms. And so Mark, if you want to go back, you can read Mark 15. He helps unpack who Barabbas was. Because Barabbas was a robber. But this word, uh, it's, it's more of a bandit who robs by force. So he robbed by force. And in the insurrection, when they were, they were, they were trying to overthrow Rome, and we're going to get into that next week, uh, Pilate did not have a good track record with the Jews. He murdered in the insurrection. So not only is he a, a robber, he's an insurrectionist, and he's a murderer. And so the irony here is that they charged Jesus with stirring up the people. They charged Jesus with upsetting the peace. But they say, bring us the insurrectionist. Bring us the one who is actually convicted of the crime. And the other irony here, and how appropriate for those of the kingdom, the murderers hand over the innocent man and ask for a murderer in, in return. They ask for one of their own kind. They ask for one of their own kingdom in exchange for the righteous one. So this is a warped kingdom. This is a vocal, is also a vocal kingdom that cries out. It tries to silence everyone by being louder. Sound like our world? If I can just beat this drum loud enough, you will believe me and I will silence everyone else. But it is also warped. Because Isaiah 5, 20 through 21 says this. This describes our world and this kingdom. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. This is kingdom number one. This is exactly what they're doing. They said he is doing evil. In the Greek, he literally, he is an evildoer. He's an evildoer. They call the sweetest, most righteous, most good thing that has ever stepped on this planet evil. That is the nature of that warped kingdom. But the beauty of our kingdom if we are in Christ, it is a redeeming kingdom. Because the lamb must be sacrificed for the sinner to go free. And this is what happens. All of this is so that the spotless lamb can go to the altar. This lamb must be sacrificed for the sinner to go free. So we just scratched the surface uh, on what it, what it means to understand the kingdom of God and what is Jesus preaching here. So I'm just going to give you a quick Recap. One, kingdom number one, murderous, deceitful, fearful, hypocritical, vocal, and warped. Are you a citizen of this kingdom? Can you tell the difference? It's a better question. If you cannot tell the difference between kingdom one and kingdom two as you walk around throughout the week, you're probably a citizen of kingdom number one. And I pray that you have ears to hear, because for all those who have ears to hear, kingdom number two, the kingdom that is not of this world, it is spiritual, it is unseen, it is celestial, it is powerful, it is Davidic, it is divine, it is ethical, it is theological, and it is redeeming, and it, is vi and it will be visible when Jesus comes again. Jesus went to the cross to enter and usher in this kingdom. 
And after his resurrection, now he reigns in glory in this kingdom. And everyone who listens to his voice will hear and see his kingdom come in full glory when he returns. I want to close us with these words from Psalm 22. Psalm 22, so appropriately, is the words that Jesus cries out when he's on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then all the details of David prophetically looking forward to the crucifixion of Christ, the culmination of this psalm. Recognizing the Lord's deliverance, here's the result. All of the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Jesus is our God. Jesus is the king of all the nations. And I pray that you look to the cross and see your sin. Repent and turn to him so that you can rejoice because he is coming again and his kingdom is coming in full power and full glory. Let's pray. King of kings, Lord of lords, worthy of all glory, honor, and praise, awesome, majestic, wonderful, full of splendor and beauty, might, justice, grace, mercy, love. We could stand here for hours and speak of your attributes. Forgive us that there is not enough breath in our lungs to give you the glory that you deserve. Lord, thank you that you would take on flesh and go to the cross to give us citizenship, to give us adoption, to bring us into a kingdom that will never pass away, a kingdom that is not of this world. Forgive us when we desire the things of this world and are drawn to the kingdom of this world. Lord, help us to see you and know you and hear your voice and recognize our citizenship. Lord, help us patiently await your return when we will see your kingdom in its full glory and we will be with you forever in new heavens and new earth with no, no more death, no more night, no more, no more pain, no more suffering. A God with his people and a people with their God. Amen.